Hello, everyone. This is Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine, and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest on this episode is Rennie Skaysbrook. Rennie is one of the hardest working motorcycle journalists in the business. He's road test editor at Cycle News, which cranks out a new issue every week. Rennie travels the world testing motorcycles, and he writes race coverage, news, and features for the magazine. But that's not all. Rennie is also a motorcycle racer who has competed several times in the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb where he set the motorcycle record in 2019. Rennie competes in several race series. He campaigns a Pirelli-sponsored Suzuki GSX-R600 in the Chuckwalla Valley Motorcycle Association Series. He races the Roland Sands Design Indian Chief in the Super Hooligan National Championship Series. And in June, he'll get his first opportunity to race in the prestigious Isle of Man TT. If that weren't enough, Rennie is a husband and a father. His son, Harvey, was the inspiration for him to write and publish a children's book called The Big Book of Motorbikes, which is available through Amazon. Rennie and I had fun recording this episode. We spent the day riding more than 300 miles at the press launch for the new Suzuki GSXS 1000 GT Plus Sport Tour. Then we recorded the interview after having a few drinks at dinner. We talked about Rennie growing up in a prominent racing family in Australia, how he became a moto journalist, and what prompted him to move to America. We also take a deep dive into his experiences racing motorcycles at Pikes Peak, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as his preparations for the upcoming Isle of Man TT. Stick around for another great episode. A warning to listeners, this uncensored episode includes adult language that isn't appropriate for work, children, or delicate sensibilities. All right, so we're going to get started. So this is a special episode of the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast because we are actually in a hotel room in Paso Robles, California. I'm with my friend Rennie Skaysbrook. He's the road test editor for Cycle News. Uh, part of the reason I wanted to interview you is you wrote a children's book, but that's just one of the many things about you. You are, uh, as I said, the road test editor for Cycle News. You're an accomplished racer. You have the track record for the Pikes Peak uh, Hill Climb. Um, and you come from a racing background. You have a racing family. So before we talk about your book and so forth, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, well, well, I mean, the first thing is I've always wanted to share a, a hotel with you, Greg, <laughs> Greg Dremson, must say. <laughs> uh, no, nah, it's all good. Um, no, nah, look, I've, yeah, I guess for better or worse, I've come from a fairly prominent racing family. Um, my... Um, if you go real back in the in the family tree, like my my grandfather was a very uh, successful motocross racer back in the forties, fifties, in in Sydney, in Australia, well, all all around Australia actually. And uh, but then that he, he had two sons, um, and both of them became very big. Uh, you know, obviously they wanted to be like dad, and so, and especially my dad. Um, Jim, he became a very successful racer. Uh, Peter, my uncle, also was a was a racer, and and uh, but Dad was the one that we really sort of pushed it on, and and he started his own uh, Honda dealership back in the day in the early seventies, but right when the you know the the big motors, the world motorcycling sure. boom was happening, it wasn't just in Sydney; it was all around the world, and. Uh, so yeah, he, he started his own Honda dealership, met my mother, and my mum was racing at the time, um, yeah, just doing the odd things here and there. My auntie used to race as well, Chris. Yeah. 
And so, so yeah. was this motocross as well as road racing? No, mum, mum was road racing, but dad was more, dad originally was more of a, um, these called short, short circuit, which is flat track, dirt track, however you want to call it. Dad was real good on uh, fast, fast dirt track racing. And that was very big in Australia at the time. They had things like a six-hour race at Nepean in, in Sydney, which is a real big event, um, very well sponsored by lots of the industry people back in the day, industry companies. And and uh, eventually he moved into road racing, um, became friends with a fairly well-known guy called Mike Howard. Oh, um, yeah? Yeah, yeah, he became very good friends with, with Mike and that led him on to the TT and and lots of other things in his life and he's done very well for himself and he's become a bit of a i guess an elder statesman now i mean i guess he's 73 probably is a bit of an elder statesman but he he's certainly earned his place in in world and especially in australian but world motorcycling in general so you grew up going to races with your parents as they would compete and you would go with them as as a kid or is it when did you sort of pick up the I never the saw mum. I never saw mum race. I wish I did. Oh yeah. But I think mum stopped racing. I think mum's racing was just for a bit of fun. Yeah. Uh, dad, I remember going because dad was always involved. So the backstory with the Haywood thing is, dad and Mike became friends because Mike moved to New Zealand after he stopped racing Formula One, and uh, but then he got bored being in New Zealand, and I think he was selling boats or something or other at the time. I mean, you go from being fastest motorcycle racer in Europe in the world to selling boats in New Zealand so it's, it's a bit of a difference and so he ended up going across to Australia and he met dad and they started doing classic racing and dad beat him a few times which to put in perspective is like me beating Valentino Rossi on 10 year old <laughs> bikes that are 10 years older right you know, right. which is kind of funny because like they were racing early 60s matchlesses and AJS's and that the British singles and that kind of stuff, right. which at the time in the early seventies, they were literally only 10 years old. So it's kind of like jumping on a 2014 R1 and beating Valentino Rossi, which not going to happen. Right, <laughs> it's right. not for me. It's not happening. Right. Um, but they became good mates and they obviously had the same sense of humor and self-deprecating sense of humor in a way. And, and, uh, yeah, they ended up, um, you know, going to the TT together. The whole thing with Mike and the TT happened pretty much because of the relationship with Dad and uh, Dad's... They were teammates in this race called the Castrol Six Hour, which was a very, very big race back in Australia back in the 70s. Like, that was the race to win. Okay. Um, You know, that was... It was production bikes. Like, I mean, down to the horn had to work. Right, You know, they were... I don't know about the tyres, but... You couldn't touch suspension. You couldn't. You couldn't do anything. That had to be as you turn the key off the showroom floor. Wow. So that uh, they did that race a couple of times together, and then Mike got the bug again, and he went to the TT, and he asked Dad to come with him, and so they all sort of went along together. And and Mum was always in the background, and you know, doing doing the good thing. And but I mean, I was always like. I just always grew up with with racing. I mean, not just with racing, we do with bikes. Sure. You know, like my earliest memories as a kid was sitting in the garage with dad and his mates. You know, they'd just be there because dad was the linchpin of the group. You know, like, you know, every, every group's got right. that guy that they always gravitate towards. And my godfather, uh, who's long departed, who, you know, I still revere now, 
like he was the he always said that dad was his idol almost in a way you know and he was 10 years older than dad um and i just remember you know being seven eight nine ten years old every saturday there'd be Cherky, vincent duck you know uncle Art. (laughs) <laughs> you know, they'd, they'd all be down the garage right. sinking piss from 12 o'clock until 7 o'clock or whatever it is, and they'd be tinkering in old BSAs and bell sets and whatever, and, and that was just the thing. And and so, and I don't think Dad ever really wanted me to race, because if he did, he would have pushed me into it, and right. he never did. Right. It, like, took a lot of pestering for me to to do it, and in one way I'm happy about that, in some ways maybe not, but like I never really had the talent to do it as a as a pro, and that's why I kind of pivoted into a, because I always wanted to get paid to ride motorbikes. Okay, like, yeah. If I couldn't do it as a racing thing, I thought, well, the next best thing, and I always liked writing, so I always thought the next best thing would be to, to, be, to be a bike journalist, and um, you know, when I left school, uh, I was a car mechanic because I was being a dickhead as far as like not thinking about what I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was go out and party and just hang out with mates and do dumb stuff. And, and that was great for a few years, but eventually you get to 23, 24 and you're like, hang on a minute. Like I'm going down the wrong path here. Right, and, right. and my girlfriend at the time, she was working for a fairly prestigious private college in Sydney. And she's like, well, there's a, there's a journalism degree that you should do. You've been talking about this stuff since, I mean, I was dating her from when I was 18. I mean, we're long broken up now, but this is when I was, Christ, I was 24 at the time, I think. And I was like, yeah, the hell with this, you know, I got, I was getting every, every day I would get dumped with, diesel oil from Volkswagen <laughs> transporters. Right. And I was like, fuck this. Like, I'm over this. And I hated work. I yeah. hated it, man. Like, it just like, the waking up in the morning, going to a job that you hate, especially when you're young. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm not saying that you can do it when you resign yourself when you're older, but like, when you're young and you feel like you've got all these opportunities, it's like, because right. the 20, when you're 20s, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like when you're 20, you can kind of make a lot of mistakes and pretty much make up for it. Sure. So it's yeah. like, I was like, oh, the hell with this? And I, I went backpacking in uh, 2006 and I went all around Europe and went to the Magello Grand Prix and... I have two friends, like long-time friends in Australia that were racing the World Endurance Championship and I saw them go race in Belgium and, you know, got friends in Germany, friends in Lithuania, friends in Poland right. and, and just visited all of them and wrote all these really long emails and realized that I like writing. And I was like, yeah. the hell with this, I'm going to go and do a big bike journal when so 2022 went, so and now. So you went to school to study journalism? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I went to Maclay College, which was 10 years uh, college that she was working for at the time and I did a two-year journalism degree very intensive uh, it was uh, what was it it was uh, radio print uh, and television although I had no interest in the television uh, the radio side I kind of thought maybe and now looking back on it, I wish I had paid more attention to it because of the right. whole podcasting thing yeah <laughs> it's just like ugh. Um, 
but uh, the, I really liked writing. I enjoyed the process of it. I enjoyed the creative side of it. I like writing about things that aren't about motorbikes if I have the knowledge base for it. Sure. Um, but my knowledge base has always been motorcycles and and I realized that, I mean, one of my dad's best friends and has since become a very good friend of mine is Alan Cathcart. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Alan Cathcart basically got me the job at Cycle News, um, which we'll get to a little bit later. Um, but I saw the life that that guy lived. Yeah. And I'm like, I want that. Like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, Alan Cathcart's ridden, you know, all kinds of motorcycles, special motorcycles all over the world. And he's, you know, his riding is in, you know, dozens of countries and a lot of yeah. outlets. He's like the ultra motorcycle journalist, you know, yeah. in some way. So, so you, so you study journalism, but you, you got a, you got pretty lucky and got a job pretty quickly in the industry. Right? Yeah, I was, I was, I was very lucky. Um, it was a bit of a baptism by fire. Like, um, my dad knew a guy called Jeff Ware, uh, in Australia who was running a website, uh, running a magazine, sorry, called Rapid Bikes Magazine. It's a very good magazine. Um, so we had like Performance Bike Magazine, uh, which was the UK version. I think it was called Street Bike Magazine back in Australia, which is basically like guys taking sports bikes and hiding them up. And yeah, you know, it was back in the days of long swing arms and turbos and, you know, GSXRs and high boozers and all that kind of crazy shit. They used to come primarily out of America that went via Europe and okay. got turned into street fighters and then fed back into Australia. It was kind of funny and like now that you can see, no, I look back, I can see the progression of where all that stuff went. Because we used to get a lot of information, we used to get a lot of stories, sorry, out of Europe, especially Germany. And I didn't care what the hell I was writing or writing, I didn't give a shit. All I cared about was the fact that I was getting paid to ride motorbikes. Right. I didn't have to work on Volkswagens anymore, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I didn't, I, I mean, I worked on the clock, don't get me wrong, I was there. And because I, that's the other thing too, is like when I left being a mechanic, became a journo, I was so used to that regimented, like you start at 7.30, you finish right. at five right. and there is no screwing around in between, which is probably good for Jeff as well at the time too, because I was his first employee. So I had that military sort of mindset of like, we, we literally punched the clock. You know, we had our cards, we go yeah. punch right, the right. bloody clock. We punched the clock and then I just kind of took that mindset into rapid bikes. It did work out with me and Jeff, uh, but I learned a lot just in the just in the eighteen months that I was with him, or fifteen months, wherever it was. Um, and then I went to Australian Motorcycle News and got the job as the road test editor, which was kind of weird because it was a the job I always wanted. Like in Australia, like road test editor for AMCN is right. that job. I mean, the only job. So, how old were you when you got that job? I was twenty. I just turned twenty-five. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and I'd had a year and a half experience, and all of a sudden, I'm now the voice for AMCN. Right. I granted, I had a lot of help with a lot of um, you know experienced people. Uh, Mark Willis and Alex Gobert and those guys that were helping me along the way. 
but I was still the one writing the stories and putting these things out there. And now that I read back some of the stuff I wrote, God damn. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I mean, it was embarrassing. But it was a learning process and whatever, and I got better over the time. Right, and, right. And by year two, year three, I started to really find my feet. And, uh, but it, like the competition side of things, I didn't, I didn't care at that point. Like I'd, I'd already been racing early 2000s. I had a good go at trying to maybe make something of it, maybe get to pro level in Australia, I guess is probably the best I could have ever hoped for. Um, and then in 2003, one of my best mates, uh, Reese Bansell, he was, he was killed at Eastern Creek, uh, which is now Sydney Motorsports Park. But that really took a lot of shine off okay racing for me like yeah i had stopped racing probably by halfway through 2002 i had a really big crash at a, at a circuit called iron park which isn't there anymore and smashed the bike to bits and like i got out of it all right thank god but like i was just over it yeah you know? and like <laughs> yeah dad didn't i didn't have the money didn't want to spend the money it doesn't really matter right like right like he, he had his he understood more than what I did and I didn't have, I just didn't have the money full stop, let alone the want to keep going. And I realized how badly I didn't want it when, um, a guy called Warren Willing, who is a big legend in Australian racing, he's no longer with us, but he, I used to look to that guy like he was God when I was a kid. He was Wayne, Wayne, Wayne Rainey's crew chief back okay. when Rainey was winning, winning championships with Kenny Roberts. And um, I remember having this conversation with him. We were at a funeral for mutual, well, one of their friends, my dad's friends, one of Warren's friends. And we were talking about racing somewhere. We got on this conversation and, and I said to him, I go, yeah, I couldn't afford it. And then he said to me, I'll never forget. He goes, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he goes, who cares if you can't afford it? You'll figure it out. And I realized then that I didn't want it. Uh, I didn't want it as much as what I thought I wanted it. Right. And that made... In a way, it was almost comforting. Like, it was yeah. a nice thing to hear from... Because Warren was, like, the guy in the 70s. He was the, you know, McDoan Casey Stoner of the 70s for Australia. And um, for him to say that to me, and considering how much I revered the guy, really kind of made me go, okay, maybe I didn't want it. Well, I mean, even if you're going to realise your dream, which is becoming a racer, it's, it's very hard work. So you've got to yeah. have that... That passion, that fire in the belly, and if you don't want it enough, then it will be even that much harder, I imagine. So it's weird too. It's like it's this thing of like racing has a it's a it's a thing where it has to be driven by the parents. Because unless a kid is other generational talent, they're not gonna know they really want it until they want it. You know okay. what I mean? Sure. So there's yeah. 15 years of the parents pushing them. And I've right. seen it time and time again right. where the parents are the ones that want it. Right. And my parents never did that. And I understand why they didn't because, I mean, I have a five-year-old son and I don't want to do it for him. Yeah. I mean, not that I don't want him to race and not that I don't, but it's just like I see the strain that, that it puts on kids right. Right. and it puts on families and the financial strain. I mean, holy shit. Like the amount of yeah. money that you got to spend to be, especially now, you got to be even have a chance to have a go, right? Right. Like not even to be the guy. Um, 
I understand now why mum and dad did what they did, and that's cool. Like, I'm totally happy for it. What I am very happy about is that I got the love of motorcycling. Right. Because motorcycling is so much more than racing. Racing is a bloody fraction of what motorcycling really is. You know, like, the... I mean, to fast forward, which is kind of why I'm in America, uh, to fast forward a bit, by... Halfway through 2012, so I was three and a half years into being uh, the road test editor at AMCN, I was just like, fuck it, I'm, I'm over it. Because AMCN was hard. Like, really? Like, we had, it was a two-week magazine, Cycle News is one week. Yeah. Um, but it was harder at AMCN. Like, you had to grind so hard. Like, we were cranking out so much work. Right. Big features. You know, yeah. like 3,000, 3,500 word features wow. that took four or five separate breakouts. Now, you can punch out 1,500 words and it's, yeah, cool, it's cool. And like if it's 1,500 good words, and yeah, it's great. Right. But we would do 3,000 words, 1,000 words, 1,500 body copy, and then three 500 word breakouts on top of it, each of which took its own day's worth right. of work to do. Right. So it was, it was so hard. And then like, but I'm grateful for doing it, but by the halfway through, I'm like, I don't know. I fucking fuck that R1. I don't want to <laughs> ride that thing. I don't care. They held it. Like, and, and it was, and it was really frightening because right. I was like going, this is what I want to do. And I'm like, this guy's giving me a factory prepped R1. And I don't want to ride it. Right. I'm like, what the hell? And so I had a good friend of mine, I'll still have a good friend. She's, uh, her name's Hannah, and she's in London. Uh, she's actually moving back to Australia this year, funnily enough, after about 15 years. But she was my old flatmate, ironically, at the time when, when I was doing college. And I had this great idea that I was going to surprise her in London. She didn't know about it. We had mutual friends, my now wife, her... Uh, old best friend was living in London and she, so we hatched this plan where I was going to fly into London we are going to surprise Hannah but it was also going to be this whole thing of like for the tax man it was like I'm going there to do a story and I did I went from the bottom of England to the top of Scotland and all the way around so the whole lap of the UK right. on a GS but yeah when I surprised Hannah had the best had the best time I jumped on that GS and then I just did this big tour and I went from London to Leicestershire, um, did the Triumph thing, then went to, oh, I can't remember where it was, I went to stay at Guy Martin's house, the TT racer, yeah. um, stayed at his house and then we rode from there to Fort William in Scotland, Fort William to Carlisle, Carlisle all through the Lakes District, all through the, like the back, back ends of the UK where I stayed after that and then back in the UK and I went fuck that was good like that was fun and I kind of understood a different side of motorcycling sure which I guess is a bit more the rider side of like the isolation and the because you got to be pretty honest with yourself when you ride and you don't have music right and you don't have play a podcast like it's you and your own thoughts. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's 
not always a good thing. <laughs> I would say it can be good, it can be bad, depending yeah. on what your thoughts are. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. not always a good yeah. thing. I mean, I've had talks with Dad about this. Like, it's there's some pretty dark shit that can come out, and that's yeah. when I started to realize the therapeutic effect, I guess, of writing. Yeah. And um, we uh, after I came back, September of twenty. 12, came back and I'd already made my mind up I was going to quit AMCM. I had no idea what I was going to do. And then I was talking to dad and dad, you know, for, you know, bless him, has a, pod, uh, a podcast I want to talk about. Dad owned, is the editor of uh, Old Bike Australasia, which is by far the most successful um, classic bike magazine in Australia and okay. New Zealand. Yeah. One of, definitely one of the biggest ones in the world. Um, it's been going since 2005 okay. and his publishers, Next Media, were looking for a separate bike title and they said, you want to come on board and I needed a change and I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. Yeah. And, and so the original idea with Free Wheeling Magazine is what we called it, was it was based off Primarily adventure riding, but it was also uh, motorcycle holidays and touring and you know just the that up uh, that side of riding, right. not the competition side. Right. But unfortunately, it's like I mean, I did that for two years. By the end of the two years, the competition elements started to creep back into the magazine and I started to do racing and then doing racing and writing stories on the racing I was doing. It's a bit like an addict going back to the, to the, <laughs> to the needle. Right, right. <laughs> In a way. And then I kind of, re- and then I, um, yeah, we ended up, it didn't work. It didn't work. It was okay. a good magazine. It's yeah. a good magazine, but it didn't work. And uh, then we went to America, which is... <laughs> so, so how did that happen? You said... Alan Cathcart was, was, you know, instrumental in helping you get your job at, at Cycle News. But what motivated you to leave your home country to come to the United States to, I mean, you, you still worked for, you know, a motorcycle publication. You're still a journalist, but why did you want to make such a big leap? Um, I didn't until I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the story with this, I mean, this is, this is a bit of a weird story. I had typed up my letter of resignation at freewheeling because I was just like, I can't deal with it anymore. Like the publishers and I weren't getting along. Right. It just wasn't the, wasn't the right fit. So anyway, uh, I was, I typed my letter of resignation. I'd printed it and I was waiting to go in. This is a true story. I was waiting to go into my boss's office to hand him a letter. And I had 10 minutes to wait and I got on Twitter and I never <laughs> get on Twitter. Like I, probably been on Twitter five times since then. I was scrolling through, scrolling through, and I saw a post from Paul Carruthers. You know, everyone knows Paul in America. And it says, leaving Cycle News after 30 years, going to Moto America to run the this, the that, you know, PR, yeah. advertising, marketing, whatever it was. So I sent him a message and Paul and I had never met. And Paul, obviously, being the son of Kel Carruthers, and Kel Carruthers being a demigod in Australia as far as sure. motorcycling goes. Paul, uh, sorry, uh, Kel and dad knew each other because uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, I guess it's kind of like Mick Doon and me 
I guess, in terms of the age gap, you know, okay. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, like dad grew up knowing Kel, I grew up knowing Mick. I don't right. know Mick, but yeah. like, yeah, yeah. but that kind of difference. And, uh, and so, sent him a message and I said, what's going on? You know, like professionally we knew each other. And, and he told me what he was doing. And then I said, look, I'm about to resign from my job. Do you have any freelance work? not thinking anything else of it. And he goes, here's my phone number, call me. So I speak to him. And this the first time I've ever actually spoken to him. And I ring him and I'm like, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And he says, um, there's a job going. I'm like, oh yeah. He goes, no, nah, it's, it's in America. I'm like, okay. So anyway, back and forth we went. 10 minutes later, I had a job offer to move to America. Not even that, five minutes later. So I rang up my wife, or then girlfriend, and said, do you want to move to America? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. And I went, cool, done. And so I hung up and I walked in, and I threw the letter of resignation at my boss and not through, but yeah. I was diplomatic about it right, and said, right. thank you, I'm out of here. I didn't give him a reason why. I didn't tell him that I was going to America or anything like that. Because at that point, it was that just- That wasn't a, your motivation. You'd already had the letter written. So it wasn't your motivation had. for quitting. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, it wasn't. And it's just, uh, it was a, it was a ball ache to get here. I'll yeah. tell you, like, cause like that was in September, September, October, I think of 2014. Okay. And we didn't get here until I think the first or second of April in 2015. So, you know, give or take six months. Yeah. And I so I, I had already committed at freewheeling to working until the end of the year. Um, I got paid until the 31st of December, but the last issue went to bed on the 12th of December. That okay. So I got actually two weeks of pay. Plus I had holiday pay and all that sure. other stuff. So by, from the, call it the 1st of January until the day we left, I hadn't had a job. Yeah. And so I would, but it wasn't solidified. I was actually getting the job. So we went back and forth and I finally got the shit to cycling news, like previous owners, not the guys that own it now, and said to him, like, you guys need to give me this job or I've got to do something else. Like, Because you had to get a work visa, is that right? Well, yeah, I had to do work visas, but I just needed income. Yeah, I got to have a job. Yeah. And I wasn't going to go and jump on the dole or like welfare or whatever it's called. And it's like, fuck that. And so, yeah, we ended up getting a... I remember blowing him up one time <laughs> and then two weeks later, this thing come in the mail, big stack of papers came in the mail at my place in Sydney, right on the beach in Sydney. And I was like, all right, cool. I guess we're doing this. And we, it's funny when you throw your life out like that. Yeah. Cause we literally packed our entire lives into two suitcases and we had a, we had a life's worth of stuff. We had yeah. bikes, cars, all the shit that goes with it, houses, yeah. furnitures, beds, kitchen appliances, like yeah. everything. We literally chucked everything out on the street. And by the end of the day, nothing was left. Wow. All the neighbors came and freaking picked what they wanted <laughs> and took yeah. off. I've done the same thing Just, when I moved out of places, yeah. Yeah, it was wild. Yeah. It was wild. I remember we had this, my dad had this bench. We had this big wooden bench, huge bloody thing, weighed a ton. And it was me and two other guys 
Like it was the best workbench. It was one of those workbenches where like you go, I'm going to put that in the corner. I'm not moving for 30 years because yeah. that fucking thing's going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we took this thing out of the street. I swear it lasted five minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know who took that bloody yeah. thing, but I mean, he's probably, he's probably blown two discs in his back. Trying exactly, to exactly. It's amazing how quickly something heavy will move. Oh, you know, man. Somebody's motivated. So, uh, so spring of 2015... You and uh, your girlfriend at the time, well, she, Annabelle, she's now, she's now your wife, Annabelle, yeah. yep. mother of your, your son, Harvey. Uh, uh, so you guys moved to the United States. You go to work for Cycle News. This is a weekly publication. It's got a long history in the United States, covers a lot of racing. Uh, but you do, you know, you were hired as, were you? As, I was still the road test editor. So you the road test editor. So, yeah. you're, so you do not only racing coverage and news and things like that, but... Like we're right now, the reason we're in a hotel room in Paso Robles is we're at the Suzuki GSX-S1000 GT Plus press launch. And we've been, we rode 300 miles today. And so you go to lots of press launches, you test lots of motorcycles. And so yeah. that's a big part of your job. That was the job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, and that was always the job. I mean, the, the competition side and all that stuff was just like, if you could do it, cool, do it. Yeah. But the, yeah, it was always a job. Um, yeah. And that's the way it was always intended to be as well. I was, it was, there was never any ulterior motive to do something else. Yeah. Um, at the time when I turned up, I went into the mindset with a bit of experience, I guess, of it's got to be like I was at Rapid, but with a bit more business knowledge now, having done, gone through three publications, kind of done the bell curve in terms of like, the industry status, I guess, whatever you want to call it, um, gone from nothing to the top to starting your own thing at the bottom again. So I kind of knew what I needed to do. And it's just like, I just wanted to be a sponge and understand the American way of doing things. Cause we're always told as foreigners, the American way of doing things is different to how the rest of the world does it. I E you. <laughs> you know, not the rest of the world it's right. just you yeah. right um, and it really wasn't that different if I'm honest I mean the American the American industry has just been like marvellous yeah. absolutely marvellous like they have welcomed me with open arms yeah. like I've had run-ins with two people out of the that I could think of that out of the thousands I've met Right. You know, they have been so wonderful to me. And I mean, shit, I have an American son. Yeah. You know? So like America is now in my DNA um, and not trying to sound soppy about it, but like, you know, I mean, I love this country and I love what it's done for me. I love the fact that my son is a dual citizen because I'll never discount my heritage. Right. Like... But I love the fact that he's American. I mean, I think that's fucking awesome. Right. But the, um, you know, when we came here, we obviously didn't have Harvey. The first six months were just like, you know, like not in Kansas anymore. Right, you know, they right, had like right. eyes like saucepans and he's just like, holy shit, look at this. Like, this is awesome. Um, and, and it was great. It was just such an amazing time. We were living in this little... Um, you know, it was just me and my wife and, you know, we'd have been married a couple of months, whatever it was. And, and we got this place from uh, a friend of like one of my best mates back home, a guy he went to uni with now lives out here 
and he bought a house in Costa Mesa that had a granny flat at the back that yeah. was attached yeah. to the garage. Total by chance, because I had no idea about credit ratings. Yeah. I didn't know that you needed a credit rating to get an apartment or a pay history or any of that stuff. I just turned up here and just like, here's the rent, can I have the house? Right, right. That, that was never going to work. Right. I just managed to get in through a friend and because he knew the deal, because he'd been through it before, right. he then like gave me the green light and so we got we got in and we were living on the beach and partying and just, dude, right. it was awesome. So you and Annabelle moved to the United States. You're working for Cycle News. Um, you're getting used to living and working in the United States. So let's, uh, how did you get to the point where you, uh, got back into racing in the United States? Uh, you know, I know you've done the Pikes Peak hill climb, but what other kind of competition did you do in the um, U S honestly in the U S prior to Pikes Peak, I'd hardly raced at all. So it was, I, I, I when I first came to, to America, uh, all right, maybe were you on the uh, the Victory Impulse launch? Remember that shitbox bloody bike that the Victory launched, the the, the yeah. electric bike. Yeah. Were you sure. on that launch? Uh, we I don't know if I've ridden it. I don't know if I was on the launch, but we, we went to Colorado. We went to Denver. Oh no, I didn't go to that. One. Yeah. Okay. So we went to we went to High Plains Raceway, and they let us ride that, and then they let us ride uh, Lee Johnston's bike that he rode the TT in the in the. Uh, electric TT race, and okay. we were, I mean, you couldn't have got two more foot further apart than it. But the good thing was, is that uh, Victory, which obviously is now as Polaris, um, took us to Pikes Peak because they were running Pikes Peak with Don Kinney. Oh, right, um, yeah, the project one, project one for six. Yep, yes, yep. yes, that's right. Built by Roland Sands, who I'm now racing for, which is kind of ironic. Um, and yeah, we ended up going there and Don had smashed the bike to bits at the <laughs> previous Ironically, incredibly ironically, at the bloody corner that I crashed at in the race in 2016, which we'll get to that. Um, and anyway, I went there in 2015 as a spectator and was like, I've got to do this. Like, and uh, to give you background, I knew I, because of Don, too, because Don had ridden the Multistrada, I think, previously, uh, and when I was still in Australia, and I thought, oh, that's cool. I didn't realize that bikes rode Pikes Peak. I only ever, my only interest in Pikes Peak only ever came from the Ari Vatten and Climb Dance movie with him in the Peugeot 405 or 406 sure. or whatever yeah. it was, which is just one of the greatest racing films ever made, as far as I'm concerned. And so I thought it was still, I didn't even know the buddy thing was paved when I turned up there and I was right. like, and I saw it and I was like, oh, cool, all right. And then I came back from that after having a great weekend with you know, Morgan Gales and those boys and um, I came back just going, I'm doing this. And, and I saw what the hill climb was in terms of the kind of corners it was and there was only one bike for the job and it was the KTM 1290 Super Duke. Okay. And so I went to KTM and said to them, I'm going to, I, like, I, I kind of disguised it a little bit. I said, give me a long-term super chick. <laughs> so I got this long-term super chick because this is back then. I mean, the industry has changed so much in the five years, obviously, since COVID and the financial crises and the, 
supply chain issues and the blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. You know, like back then it's like, you want a bike? Have a bike. I'm like, yep. give me a Super Duke. So I got this Super Duke and I'm six months into living in America. I've got this KTM Super Duke and I've got power parts on the thing and I've got a beautiful wife and I'm living in America. I'm like, this is sweet. <laughs> so, so I said to KTM, I'm like, I want to go to Pikes Peak. And I managed, I don't know how, I couldn't sell ice to an Eskimo, but like I managed to sell KTM on them paying for it. And Tom Moen, who was a salt of the earth man, um, he, he said, yes. Oh, thank God he did. Um, and we, he and I went to Pikes Peak together in 2016. And I fucked it up. I completely <laughs> fucked it up. Uh, it was... Because the thing with Pikes Peak, like, I... Yeah, I did. I qualified on pole. I did that year. Never seen the place before, and I qualified. Well, actually, I did. Yeah, of course I did. I qualified on pole by four seconds. So, yeah, the Pikes Peak was... Uh, they In practice, they, they'd separate, because obviously you're dealing with the bikes and the cars... So they would separate the mountain into three sections. So okay. you'd have the bottom section, and then you had the midsection, which was all the hairpins. Okay. And then you had the top section, which was the take the brain out, leave it there, pick it yeah. up on your way back kind of area, and just pin it. Okay. And uh, that was a that was the place where you really went for it. And uh, but the bottom section was that was me. You know that was that was road race style. It was like every great corner in road racing but every single one of them is banked ah. no off camber corners and you're yeah. going uphill yeah so you throw that bastard in there as hard as you can and if you have a good front tire and good front suspension you just bury the thing on the brakes and just stop it turn it pick it up pull the trigger bang and you're off there and it was just bad i've ridden bikes in a lot of places in the world yeah. And I still have never got a rush like Pikes Peak. Wow. Like, it's just far out. It's just so cool. And so I got on pole and, um, you know, all the expectation, I guess, that comes with being on pole. My parents flew out from Australia for it. Wow. And, um, yeah, I screwed it up. I, um, the first, so you only ever get one run at Pikes Peak per year. Okay. And that's your race run. And so I ended up, I mean, there's a, another background story to this, which I'll tell you, but like, um, I did the first, the, the qualifying section of the course, first third, first third of the course, and I just wrote terribly. Like I missed 50% of my apexes, I missed all this stuff. And in the back of my head, I had thinking the KTM USA is on this, and I had KTM branded leathers, I had this beautiful bike, I had... Pirelli giving me tires, I had the whole deal. And um, I came into Elk Park, and Elk Park is the first point of the circuit where you get above the tree lines. You can see the tree lines because like the the course goes at basically 45 degrees to the trees. Yeah. So it just you just watch the trees just go and just disappear, <laughs> and you're above the trees. Yeah. And I felt like I rode so badly in the first third that I had to absolutely gun. Truth was, I was actually five seconds in front, but I didn't know this until way after the point. felt like shit, but you actually had done well. I had yeah. done well. And so I out-psyched myself, and I said to myself that I needed to go through Elk Park flat out, which you could do. And I did. 
But I got to the end breaking point going about 40 mile an hour faster than I'd ever gone before. And so I hit the brakes and I had three options. First option was like crash, like lose the front and go into the barriers. The second option was to hope to Christ you make the corner. The third option, which is the one I took, was basically dirt track the thing in on the rear brake and hope that you rebounded off the wall. And I almost pulled it off, except I rebounded over the wall. Oh, okay. And I landed on the edge of the cliff and all this sort of stuff. And amazingly, the bike stood upright, stood in the middle. And, you know, I got back on and kept going, set the fastest time in the third section and didn't matter, still lost. But the, the, obvious, the, the other story is the guy before me, Connor, Connor Tonner, Scottish guy who was riding an SXV. Remember those SXV 450 mm-hmm. Aprilias? The yeah. V-twin things? Yeah. Supermoto thing. He went before me. Because back then they didn't do the way they did later in years where they just did slowest to fastest. Like pole position was in this weird time. Yeah. So Connor went and I went. But Connor had gone in the same corner, but he took the first option and he folded the front. Mm. And he went into the Armco and folded himself around the Armco, Ooh. you know, like a piece of wet paper. And like, we thought he was dead. Uh, so we got to the top and he'd obviously been airlifted. Uh, we, we got to the top and you know, as luck would have it, Joe Tonner, who's Connor's dad, he was the guy that came behind me. So we got to, I got to the top and I'm pissed off and throwing my arm and acting like a dickhead and just, just, yeah, not, not handling it with grace, shall yeah. we say. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but not even thinking of the fact that this guy, like he didn't even enter my head. Like right. this guy has, is fighting for his life. And Pike's Peak had previously, the year before, had lost the guy and they had therefore implemented a, I guess they call it like a no speech policy where they, no information got out. Okay. So you had no idea. And this came to bite us later in the years with Carlin. Um, and so no one knew. And everyone just assumes the worst. So we're up there basically consoling Joe that his son's dead. And it was really fucking heavy. Yeah. You know, yeah. it wasn't cool. And it turns out Joe that Connor wasn't dead. He was really mangled. Okay. Really mangled. It took him a couple of years to get over it, but he got over it. We actually saw him again because Joe came back amazingly to race the, the event. I think it was 2018, wow. uh, a couple of years later. But still wasn't enough to stop me from saying, I want to I want to do this. Yeah. Um, it's a weird place, Pikes Peak. It's a strange place. Like it's, it's got this weird aura to it. <laughs> it does, man. It really does. So, so you raced uh, KTM Super Duke in 2016, is that correct? So, uh, 17 and 18 as well. 17, 18, so you did KTMs, yep. and then you went to an Aprilia? Yes. So in 2018, I lost the race to Cullen, Cullen Dunn by six tenths of a second, which to my knowledge, as far as I'm aware, is the closest finish in a hundred and something years, cars, bikes, trucks, whatever. Wow, okay. Which fucking sucks. <laughs> so you were on Aprilia, he was on a Ducati, that was 2018. 2018, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was, a, we, we lost that one. I said, wait, I, 
Um, and then 20, end of about September of 2018, uh, Shane Pachilio, who's a very good friend of mine, has always been, uh, since I got to America, he asked if I wanted to ride Tuano at Pikes Peak, the Aprilia Tuano. It didn't take much to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, aside from, you know, the end result, everyone knows what happened. You know, Carlin died. He was faster than me. We won our class fair and square uh, in terms of the heavyweight class. Like, we beat Cody Vashaltz. No worries. Our bike was was legal, was 100% legal to the law. It was legal. We had the thing checked over. God knows how many times. Um, you know, we, we won that one fair and square, uh, but we no one won that day. You know, like, it, it, was, a, it was a shit day. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, Carlin and I were racing, we were riding supermotors together at Apex, at Adams, three weeks before he died. We were having breakfast together four days before he died. Right. No one won that day. Um, yeah, you know, we, I felt like I rode really well. I didn't ride to the best of my ability because there's about three spots that I can think of where I lost a, a bunch of time. Carlin was the fastest guy that year. Yeah. Um, it's that, it, it is the ultimate expression of that, like to finish first, first you have to finish. Right. which is the oldest racing saying in the world. Right. Um, but Shane and I had a lot of fun building that thing. Right. You, know, we, you know that theory, that old stoic philosophy of like, it's not the destination, it's the journey yeah. kind of theory. That was very, that's the first time that ever really rang true for me because we had so much fun building that bike, going testing, you know, just hanging out what if we did this oh what if we did that? like the race we did at Fontana together where we had such little horsepower compared to the super bikes where we nearly beat them and we were just laughing our asses off the whole time the actual race itself is stressful as shit yeah like but the the process involved and that was the fun stuff yeah and you know that's where you solidify the relationships and you have some beers afterwards right and, right um yeah. So, I mean, that's got to be bittersweet. You set the Pikes Peak motorcycle record, but that was the year that, you know, like I said, Carlin Dunn died that year. Um, since that race, they have not allowed motorcycles on no. Pikes Peak, and it's unlikely that they will in the future. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, if they did, they would for sure restrict it. I mean, we... To give you a bit of background information, I mean, from, I, I, I think it was Carl Sorensen, I think the guy's name was. I could be wrong. I should know this. Um, 2015, that year that, that um, Don wrapped the bike around the fence at the yeah. same corner that I did. Yeah. So there was a guy that was killed uh, at Pikes Peak. And from every practice session, I distinctly remember Jim Vidmar, and you know, a couple of the other boys that were there that ran the whole show. Jim was the was the main guy. He was the sort of motorcycling clerk of the course. Um, you know, Jim and I had our run ins at the time, but I respected the guy, but like, you know, we we kind of butted heads a few times over the years. But he did his duty as he had to. Um, but he said it 
he said at the start of every practice right practice day he goes don't crash because if someone fucking dies here or something goes down this thing stops right I mean it was kind of like well yeah we don't need any other impetus and not throw ourselves off the fucking cliff <laughs> we get this yeah yeah right but right. I understood it from his point of view but it was yeah. kind of like it was that thing that didn't need to be said that needed to be said yeah you know thing. and I sort of got it um so I felt bad about that. And I always felt like the bikes were a bit of an inconvenience to the cars because it is a car event. Yeah. And the look the at the end of the day, like the Pikes Peak organization tried to put too much shit in one day. Okay. Like, for God's sake, man, you've got 365 days or whatever it is of a year. Yeah. Just do two days. Yeah. You know, like... A bike day and a car day. A bike day and a car day. Yeah. I mean, like, I get there's so many other factors involved in terms of the the national park side of things and the tourist side shutting of things. Shutting the road down. Shutting the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all that stuff, I get. And I get it also that each day of racing is not just the day you shut down. You also have to shut down the previous day or the, the day, half of the day to make okay. sure that everything's clear. Right, right. So really, it's probably four days yeah. of shutdown for two days of racing. Um you know, the Spider Grips team were very adamant on this, which is the team that Carlin and Cody rode for. Yeah. Uh, they were like, well, why don't we run our day and the cars run the other day and then everyone's happy. Yeah. But the car guys, I've always felt really bad for the cars because the cars, you, you would imagine yourself as a privateer guy, right? So like the fast, by the end of the time when I, the year I won it, it was slowest to fastest bikes. Mm-hmm. Right, and so that coincided with the best time of the weather, because being a mountain, there's yeah. clouds for there's cloud cover, there's rain, there's snow, right. there's all this sort of stuff, which usually meant about ten thirty, eleven o'clock in the morning, and that also meant the fastest cars went in the opposite direction. So I was pole, or if I was pole, or Carlin was pole, we'd go and then pole on the cars, second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way down the line. So the fastest guys got the best track time. And their whole goal always was course records. Course yes. record, course record. Yeah, right. And do right. that and the best weather. Yeah. But you imagine that you're a dude that sits there with a car that you built and your deal is you're going to go and race Pikes Peak and you're 54th in the line. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, on the stop, it starts raining. Therefore... Yeah. First, the last third of the course is done. Yeah. By three o'clock, it's hailing. It did every year I was there. It's yeah. probably doing it now. So therefore, the next third of the course is done. Right. So you're never going to get to the top. Right. So like, why, why? And you're charging the same money that the guys at the top are making. Right, right. So, right. yeah, it was just, there was a lot of stupid things there, which really the bikes were a bit of an inconvenience. But everyone I spoke to were like, yeah, fuck the cars. We want to see the bikes. Yeah. You know, like we were the guys. Well, just separating. I mean, it's like the Speed Week at um, Bonneville. I mean, they, I mean, they run some motorcycles at Speed Week, but they've got there's a separate motorcycle, you know, yeah. uh, you know, speed runs and so forth. And it makes sense just because if you've only got one course and you've got so many different competitors and so many different classes, it only makes sense to separate it to where you can just like it just so it's just logistically it's a little bit for more sure. Simple. So so you. Um, Based on your Pikes Peak um, win, you've got 
this summer you're uh, we're it's it's May it's no it's mid April right now in June you're going to race the Isle of Man TT where your father used to race. Yeah. Will this be your first? First. First time competing at the TT. Yes, it will. Yeah. 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 Quietly, so, quietly shitting myself. <laughs> so, uh, what have you done to prepare for uh, your first Isle of Man TT race? Um, so I went there in 2019 in November of 2019, which feels like a lifetime ago now, um, to do laps in the car. So I was invited over by Paul Phillips, who, who runs the event. Excuse me. Um, Paul Phillips is employed by the Isle of Man government to be the over general manager of the TT. And I, it came about through my, my friend David Johnson, who's podium finisher in the TT, factory rider for the TT. Uh, for, he was racing for Honda at the time. And so I went over there in 2019 and had lunch with Paul the end of the week after 28 laps in the high car. He said, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a go. But it's an intimidating place. It's very intimidating. Um, I never got intimidated by Pikes Peak. Um, Pikes Peak was like, yeah, I, I got it. It's a, it's a hill climbing going up, the bank camber thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm going a bit off your question here and how I prepared. But, um, you know, I, I came back from that 28 laps and I had already got the PlayStation game, the first version of the PlayStation game. And I started playing it and it was because it had only been released about a month or two before I'd left to go to the TT it, or to see the course. It was very close to what I remember in terms of landmarks, in terms of the way the, the road looked. And, um, yeah, I mean, you can never, the one thing I learned with Pikes Peak is you can never look at trees because yeah. trees grow. Right. Like you only, if you, if you have to look at a marker, which I've always tried to avoid, it's very dangerous. I feel in street racing and I've straight done street racing all over the world. Like it's very different. It's very dangerous to look at, markers and go okay that's where i break unless it's a bloody shop or yeah. a house or something right. if it's something that could be moved right which happens a lot right. in road racing it's best not to look at it but when i came back from the tt i was like okay cool it looks pretty similar and so i've been playing that bloody game now for two and a half years and so this is a way to learn the course because how long the course is how 37 and three quarter mile 37 three quarter mile and so it how i mean so you've got to have all the turns and and all the different parts of the course and so you've got to learn that um because you're going to go in june you're going to get a little bit of practice time you've driven the course in a car but you've never ridden it on a motorcycle no no never ridden on a motorcycle um, I've done, as I said, the car laps, the, I've watched a million laps online. Um, I spoke to Josh Brooks, um, who the Josh Brooks is a British superbike champion, Aussie guy from not grew up, not far from me. We're about the same age. And he gave me a, a few tips here and there. Davo who's one of my good mates. Um, he's given me a lot of tips. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I find that, especially with learning circuits, and this actually goes back to the job as well. Like, the job as a motorcycle journalist, especially when a track goes, is like you're going to turn up to a track, you're going to know where the track goes, and you do it. 
Right. Like you, no, I'm not kidding myself. I'm not going there to win the thing. Like, right. I, I right. want to go there and do it. I want to qualify, which I'm pretty sure I'm capable of doing. And then, yeah, go out and race as best as I can. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've never gone to a start line going, I'm going to win this. Cause every time I've done that, I've fucking stuffed <laughs> it up. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Know? So what classes are you going to race in? I'm going to be in super sport. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there was maybe a possibility of doing a big bike, like the super bike, or this. Or it would have been a super stock build, with which, like as Peter Hicklin has shown, is more than capable of winning a super bike race. Right. Is more the tires than anything. Yeah. You know, like I mean, yeah, you got a two hundred and ten horsepower versus two hundred twenty five horsepower. Right. Right. You got to still be able to ride yeah. the bike. Right. Um, the biggest thing is the tires. Right. Um, but the super sport, the good thing about the super sport is that it is middle ground between all the classes. So you can run super bike practice, you can run super twin classes, you can run super sport classes, obviously. But if you had either a super bike or a super twin class, you are restricted to your class. So that enables me to get a lot of track time. Um, I can, I mean, obviously the guys, the most of the really quick guys like Kickman and Michael Dunlop, they're riding all the classes, so right. they're just doing everything. They're right. just rent, going round and round and round. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Right. I just want to like it's different to Pikes Peak. Like I knew that I could win at Pikes Peak. This one, I'm kind of, I'm the little guy in the in the in the realm of the giants. Right, you right. Know? Like the TT is, for me, it's the Mount Everest. Sure. You know? Like you go there, and it's after that, and it's also the thing too is just like. It's the Mount Everest is kind of achievable to the to the everyday guy, right. you know. Like, no, unless you're uber special, you're never gonna see a Grand Prix grid. Yeah. You know, right. even if, like even if you're gonna get lapped, that's yeah. the thing. Like the guys who get lapped in Grand Prix are still better than ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the world's riders. Right. 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 Whereas with the TT, it's like there are avenues where the average guy can get there. Okay. And yeah. So. I can't wonder. I mean, shit, I'm going to be 39 and three quarter by that stage. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a spring chicken. Sure. So it'll be good to go there and tick that one off and yeah. then, you know, see what happens after that. Well, like I said, you know, your, if your father's race there and it's, you've, you've competed in a lot of different kinds of racing and that that's a big bucket list. Like you said, Mount Everest, you know, so, um, I know you do other kinds of road racing. You do super hooligan racing and so forth, but we've been talking for a while I want to know more about your, you wrote a children's book, a big yeah. book of motorbikes. So a big book. Yeah. Tell us about what motivated you. I know you, you're a father. Yep. Is that partly what motivated you to write a, a kid's book? It was completely. Yeah. Uh, the, the, where it came from was, uh, every time I wrote, I read a book that we had, we had this book that my mother bought me. So his grandmother bought him called Barry the bike. It was very, the most British book ever. You know, it's like, Little CT one ten posty guys that are going around the British countryside delivering the mail. The bike is called Barry. And, uh, I remember reading this thing and I'm like, I could write something like this. But I also wanted to do something that had a bit of information on the current industry, I guess, because I couldn't find it. Yeah. You know? And so I I wrote this book. It was it was just for Harvey, honestly. Yeah. And so many kids around the world. I mean, I've sold books in bloody India. I've sold them in, I mean, just 
all through Europe, like Italy, France, Germany, UK, I've sold heaps. I sold them in Israel, wow. like just all through Amazon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sold a bunch in, in America. Um, and that has been, you know, to the you know, gratitude of a lot of my friends in the industry uh, that have pushed the book for me. And it was never a deal of like trying to make money. It was trying, because I... I'm a, I gotta be, I'll be, gotta be honest, I am a little worried about the direction the world motorcycle industry is going just because of primarily the speeding laws. Sure. You know, I mean, that's a big thing and but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. But it's just like, I also feel that like kids need to get exposed to a little bit of danger. Yeah. You know, like it makes you think, like keeps yeah. the, keeps the pulses in your brain going. Sure. And thankfully, a lot of parents around the world think the same thing. Um, but it was only ever a little exercise for my boy, as it says in the says for my little writer, Harvey. Yeah. And um, it's it's worked out good. It's worked out to be something that a lot of kids around the world have found joy out of. And I mean, hey, you can't can't go wrong with that. So you wrote the book. You had somebody illustrate it. And so how how would somebody buy a copy of this book? Big book. Of it's all on. Uh, it's all on Instagram. Uh, Instagram. It's all on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to find. Just, super easy. Yeah. Just, just go on there and just uh, type in the big book of motorbikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's one of those things that, I mean, I have read the book so many times before I published it, and then I've hundreds of times that I read it to <laughs> Harvey. I mean, the good thing, what I wanted to do right with the book was I wanted to separate the volumes, because I know after four years of reading God knows how many children's books in all kinds of different styles to Harvey, right. that sometimes you'll get bored of certain things in the right. book. So I wanted to splice it up so that parents can read chapters, like, and they're basic chapters, you know, it's like, what colors are motorbike manufacturers? You know, like, KTM is orange, Caddy is red, you right, know, right, like, right. You know, that kind of stuff. So, like, you know, the kid will go, I want to read about colors. And then you go to the color section. And then you'll you go to the record section where Robbie Madison's done the longest jump. Or, you know, Valentino Rossi has so many Grand Prix wins. Right, right. Um, right. Uh, just so that it's nice and easy for parents so that they don't get bored of it. Yeah. But the main goal of the book is just to make sure that we have a growing generation of new writers. Yeah. Because the... I think, like, yourself and especially me, like, we came out of that generation of the 70s, 80s, where motorcycling was at its peak. Right. So it was never a question. Right. Like, whether you, I don't know about your backstory, but I mean, for me, it was never in doubt. There was always bikes around. Right, right. But, like, you, now, like, I think of kids that were born in the 90s. I mean, like, that's why my my friend Simon and, you know, Dom and Moisey and Shane and all those boys back home, like, um, yeah, we, we were all connected by this glue of motorcycling, but that glue is getting, like the, the, crew is, the crew is getting smaller. Yeah. So I want to make sure it keeps, keeps growing. Yeah, I mean, that's always a concern. I mean, you know, kids these days, whether they're, you know, and I don't mean just anything specific to the pandemic, but kids being a little bit more sheltered, maybe they're on their devices more, is that, you know, the, um, the ability to go out and explore and not constantly have a parent looking over your your shoulder or within and mm. and you know eyesight is that 
you know, when I was a kid, I got to, I had a lot of autonomy. I got to do a lot of exploring and, um, I enjoyed that adventure and that, that freedom to go do that. And motorcycling is part of that. And like you said, the, the danger, you know, whether people like to talk about it or not is I think a lot of motorcyclists and other people like to downplay the danger part because we want to be able to continue doing it. But it's, that's part of the excitement. That's part of what makes you feel more alive when you mm -hmm. ride is that there is an element of danger. So whether you're into surfing or mountain climbing or whatever, where there's something that's got where, hey, you could you could fall and get hurt. Something could happen. Mm -hmm. Is That's a big part of it. So, Doing so like I've noticed that kids seem to be, they seem to grow faster if they do something that's dangerous, but they do it, not supervised, but they do it, to a level where they feel like they're going to be okay. Yeah. You know, like there's a good chance that, um, there's a good chance that they could get hurt. Yeah. But if they use their wits about them and they trust their instincts, you know, I mean, like that's the thing is, is like, I mean, I hate to say that the school fights are not a good analogy. Like that's, yeah. not, that's not a good thing. Right. Don't want the kids to get bashed up in school. I mean, I don't want kids to be aggressive in school, but it sort of heightens the fight or flight mentality. But it's a different mindset to being like, I'm going to climb that thing. Yeah. I'm going to get to the top of that thing. And man, if you fall, you're going to get fucked up. But you're not going to fall because you know that you're going to get to the top of that thing. Right. And it's the same thing with motorcycling. Right. And I like, I mean, I can't hang shit on motorcycling because it's given me a life. Like it's given my family an identity. It's given, it's given me an identity and like, I wouldn't be who I am now without it. Right. I mean, for the injuries and all the, you know, for everything that's gone on. Yeah. I mean, if I fell off tomorrow and God forbid, you know, touch wood, touch everything that I fell off and I broke my back, I could never be bad at my motorcycle because yeah. I was doing what I wanted. Right. So it's, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to explain to people that don't already get it. Right. It's kind of one of those things like big wave surfing. If you know, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like I say, you know, that's the thing about uh, you know riding motorcycles is that you know is or any other activity that could be like that is that um, is if you. Um, didn't do some of those things, your life could be somewhat diminished. You know, if, if you only stay at home and you don't ever take some chances or challenge yourself, I'm of the mind that people need to sort of challenge themselves. They need something to push against. I mean, it's just sort of like, that's what makes us as humans, um, our best selves. Like when you're challenged with something, something could go wrong. And if something does go wrong, you've got to sort of adapt to that situation mm. and deal with it. If everything is safe and you can, and nothing can ever go wrong, we, I think we just sort of like we atrophy as as, as people. This so. is one I, This is why I've always enjoyed. I, I, what I was saying before is like I always loved traveling. Yeah, and I love traveling by myself, um, and that was half the reason why I managed to go. Hang on, solo travel, solo motorcycling, bang, yeah. as a career. Yeah, but like you, when you go on your own to a foreign land, you have to think on your feet. Yeah. Like you have to be ready. Like if shit goes down, like you got to be ready. And it's a great thing to teach kids. Yeah. Best thing, the best thing I ever did. It is the one point in my life where I 
have an absolute fork in the road in terms right. of I was going to go this way, I was going to go that way. Right. I mean, best thing, yeah. best thing I ever did. Yeah. And like, you know, probably financially, I'm probably a lot worse off than doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but far out, man. Like, yeah. if I die tomorrow, I die a happy man. Yeah. So it's like, it's all yeah. good. Well, like I said, I mean, we're, we're sit, sitting here in this hotel room and in California, we spent 300 miles riding uh, a new Suzuki Sport Tour. We had fun today. We had a lot of laughs at the brakes and so forth. We're testing the motorcycle. We're out taking some photographs. Um, yeah, it's been, it's, I have to say, getting to know you since you uh, joined the staff at Cycle News. Uh, we've been to a lot of press launches together in a lot of parts of the country and the world and so forth. And um, yeah, it's been my pleasure and, and sort of, it, it's a privilege to be able to work in the industry. Like you said, you are able to do something that you, you were a mechanic. You said that you had a job that was a job that, you know, was tough and was not very satisfying that it's motorcycling is, has given you the opportunity to do what you love and travel and see the world and so forth. So yeah, it's been an honor to get to know you and hang out. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Yeah. So uh, thanks for listening. I'm Greg Drevin said for the Writer uh, Magazine Insider Podcast. Uh, keep the rubber side down. Cheers, boys. <laughs> and girls. <laughs> if you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a positive rating and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening. 